I don't see the point of everybody not living their life so that a few people can be protected for something that they can protect themselves from for the most part, right? If you want to isolate, if you want to quarantine until all this blows over, you're certainly capable of doing that. And that's your right. I wouldn't be smirched to anybody from that. And I'll do my best to keep a mask on and protect people. But at the end of the day, like we got to move on with our lives at some point. Podcast Junkies, episode 235. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Newcomers, this is the show, the one you've been looking for, where I seek out interesting voices in podcasting and get them to kick back their heels and talk about their shows and whatever else is happening in their amazing and interesting lives. Last week, that's exactly what we did with Jordan Gasparre, host of Prognosis Daily, Coronavirus, and Sounds Like Hate, in addition to a slew of other podcasts which he's helped produce. We had a fantastic, friendly conversation about the history of podcasting, about her experiences in journalism, and some tips on how to produce better shows. Make sure you check that one out, episode 234. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlett 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right, and the link will be in the show notes as well. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with Brad Hart, host of Make More Marbles. Brad is an author, an entrepreneur, and obviously a podcaster, and he joins the show to discuss his experience helping people build mastermind groups, which increases their income and impact exponentially. With his Make More Marble show, he features interviews with top entrepreneurs and helps others understand how to harness their creativity by replacing limiting beliefs. We talk about his journey of personal discovery, his unique belief on business and life, and the power of helping others. Lots of takeaways here as Brad is an accomplished and successful entrepreneur. If you enjoyed this episode or have enjoyed past episodes and you haven't done it already, I'd love it if you leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. This episode is also brought to you by Fullcast. If you're looking for help as a business with your podcast, we offer done for you services, coaching and consulting with our done with you services. And now we also have the ultimate podcast dojo available. It's a new course and community designed to help you start your own podcast. Additional details at fullcast.co forward slash dojo, D-O-J-O. Don't forget that full show notes are available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 235. Stay tuned till the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. Let's get into this conversation with Brad now. So Brad Hart, host of Making More Marbles. Thank you for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Thank you so much for having me, Harry. And thanks everybody for listening. I'm grateful to be here. So I think I always try to figure out, based on all the different ways I'm connecting with people, I love making new connections and I'm, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. I think that's where we originally connected and I really love live events and it's been a, a bit of a bummer. I don't know if it's been the same for you, but when you have a podcast where you interview podcasters, when you have a podcast production company that produces podcasts, you go to podcasting conferences and that's where you get established and deepen relationships with friends, get new clients network, get new business, and none of that is happening now. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely have to get our fix with virtual events for now. I've been a part of a couple over the last week, a really great mastermind that P. Vargas put on with all the top influencers and okay. a lot of marketers. So that was great. I was on one today, Active Campaign. It was like Active Campaign and Digital Marketer. And I was really excited to go to that because Ryan Dice was on the mastermind last week. He told a really incredible story 
about how he grew his business and how they sold traffic and conversion. And Roland Frazier is one of his partners. And then Roland did a whole thing. So like it was, it was epic. It was perfect for me. And like anything I could say, the chat was welcomed with enthusiasm and open arms. But I start trying to make jokes in, you know, in the active campaign one, and it was a little more of a, a broad audience. And I was getting shamed. <laughs> I was getting shamed hard, but <laughs> we're living in cancel culture over here. We just got done listening to a presentation about how 79% of respondents say they want more humor in their content. And there I was going to infuse a little humor and they're like, not that kind of humor. And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> Tough crowd. I'm definitely on the free speech side of that dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And maybe we'll, we can touch on that a little bit later. I've been digging into how to make sense of everything that's going on. So I've been attracted to some of these, what I call modern day philosophers, folks like Jordan Hall, Daniel Schmachtenberger, and just they're positioning content and arguments in a way where they just want us to be better listeners and better even debaters and just better sense makers and deciding like, okay, you have to put all the information and all the noise we're receiving now in a framework that you can decide, can I listen to this information? Can I listen to this viewpoint from someone that may be diametrically opposed to what I believe in? Can I find like an ounce of truth in what they're saying and an understanding of where they're coming from so that we can find some common ground to get started? We may still end up disagreeing by the end of the conversation, but at least we can have, we can, we can stop like, you know, to your point, the cancel culture, just like, you know, just shouting over each other on Twitter. <laughs> and I think um, there's a great article medium about this idea of mimetic tribes that I think is pretty fascinating. And it's everything from QAnon to alt-right to alt-left to Marxists to white nationalists. <laughs> and it's just like, if you can think about the whole spectrum. So I'm wondering, since is the case with this podcast, it just goes where it goes. <laughs> I'm wondering what, what your experience has been with what's been happening lately. Because not a lot of people know the name Daniel Schmachtenberg yet, but I've I've got to spend some time with him. We live in community together, and I wouldn't say he's a dear friend or anything, but I you know I'm really fond of him and his brother James, and they're very successful and they they're they're in excellent mass debaters. Like you said, they they're incredible at debating the masses, and they're incredible at using their listening skills. And they're they're both homeschooled, and they're very interesting people. And then one of the people who they turned me on to, uh, Forrest Landry. Is also, Landry, yeah. Yeah, he's really incredible. If you haven't read his books, you can check him out. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I think we're in this this post-truth world, is a way to put it. You know, And, and in a post-truth world, perceptions become reality, especially when they're parroted and, and echo-chambered to death, which is, you know, you can find an echo-chamber for almost anything now, right? There's no one narrative that everybody subscribes to. So we're all kind of playing this spin game, whether we like it or not. And there's two ways to go about it. In my opinion, there's either you play the game or you opt out of the game. And, you know, I could be better about being patient. I could be better about holding my tongue in certain scenarios. But, you know, based on, I think you hit it on the, on the head. It's like, if you can have empathy for other people and where they're coming from and their experiences, it's a different level of consciousness. You know, you don't take it personally anymore. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, somebody outside looking in, Brad grew up on Long Island where sarcasm is a love language. And if you don't like it, you're probably not from the East Coast. And that's fine. Like, you don't have to like what I say, but you have to realize, like, my intent is not to harm anybody. My intent is just to make somebody snicker or laugh. Yeah. You know, that's really it. I don't, it, I didn't think about it past that. So, you know, I, I tend to gravitate more towards that side of the fence where it's like, I just want to make it entertaining to be around me <laughs> and not try to PC myself to death and, and make it so crazy that nobody can have a good time anymore. Well, I grew up in Yonkers, so I just you totally yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Irish Yonkers, man. <laughs> I've had some nights there. I'll tell you what, I got some good stories for you. So I got a friend. I won't tell him his real name because who knows. But he's from there. He lived, you know, right off of McLean Avenue is where he grew up, and <laughs> he 
he was a little bit of a drinker. We've known each other 12, 15 years, whatever it is. We used to bartend together in New York City when I was growing up. And one night he's out at a bar called Dirty Nellies. D-U-R-T-Y Nellies, right? It's the most Irish bar on McLean Avenue, one of them. And somebody brings in a rifle, like an automatic weapon to the bar. And that's pretty normal, right? There's just a lot of interesting characters that live in that neighborhood. And there's there's some- What year is this? Probably five, six, seven years ago, somewhere in there. For whatever reason, they decide it's a good idea to get my friend this rifle to play with. And it's loaded. (laughs) And he ends ends up going off. And he shoots a hole in the $3,000 internet jukebox that they had just had installed and destroys it completely. And nobody got that upset, but they're like, you're going to have to pay for this jukebox, right? <laughs> so he's like, well, I don't have the money, but I'll tell you what I will do. It was a Super Bowl, right? So he goes and puts down $1,000 on a box for the Super Bowl. <laughs> he didn't have the three grand. He's like, I win the Super Bowl pool. I'll pay back the jukebox and, and whatever. And lo and behold, he wins the stupid thing. <laughs> he wins wow. $44,000. So they take the, the 3K for the jukebox. They take the, the bars cut and he gets 44 grand in cash, right? And uh, obviously, he didn't have to report it to the government. So, <laughs> so he takes his forty-four grand in cash, immediately gets on a plane, goes down to Honduras, and lives in Honduras for six months. Wow! Got all the work done, learned how to scuba dive, just had a grand all time, like traveling up and down the isthmus. <laughs> it was like, who lands with their you know feet on the ground and their head in the clouds more than this guy? Like the luck of the Irish man. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. A lot of people would get their arms broken for something like that. He he came out smelling like roses. I've played some card games <laughs> on McLean Avenue. <laughs> so one more time, he's in Vegas, right? And he he had a record so he couldn't rent a car. So his friend rents this, you know, the dream cars, this Dodge Viper. And for whatever reason, I'll, I'll never understand. He lets my, my friend drive it, who, you know, probably shouldn't be driving this car. And it's a very powerful car, right? It's two-wheel drive and it's a manual shift. So he comes around the corner of Flamingo Avenue in second gear and hits the curb and flips the car into the into the fountains at the flamingo oh jeez! you know they're dragging them in because the, they want to you know they replace all the fountains all the glass <laughs> everything he destroyed they want to they take their pound of flesh he drags them to the back room somehow they talk their way out of it but they were like you're gonna pay for all this he's like i literally cannot pay for all this i did more damage than i am capable of paying back <laughs> it was in the news it was the whole thing so wow and somehow he landed on his feet yeah i've got i've got a lot more but i, I figured we'd make it entertaining for the day <laughs> yeah growing up in new york was was fascinating for a lot of reasons. I'm glad to be gone though with everything that's going on. I, I do not want to be there now. Yeah, it's interesting because it depends who you talk to and depends on what you read and what perspective you're looking at it. From some end, the people on Manhattan in Manhattan, you know, they're they have their nice apartments and they're 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 flocking <laughs> to other parts of the country in droves. Housing prices are going up in all these other cities where people are, are going to a lot of people going to the West Coast. And it's like everyone's proclaiming the death of New York, but I mean, there's millions of people in New York who don't have anywhere else to go. So like, it's a city that reinvents itself every five years anyway. Like I grew up there and I go back and there's nothing that I used to, like all the places I used to hang out are gone. Like if, if you last more than five years there, you're, you're an enigma, you're a, you're a staple, right? So I, I don't think it'll ever die, but it'll definitely reinvent itself. And, and maybe it's good for the city, right? Maybe it's good to have a little oh, yeah. bit. Of, oh, yeah. I, I don't think it's good that people are getting sick and, and passing away, but that's what people do. They get, they die, right? That's a part of life. So I'm not like, if you kind of zoom out in the scope of history, if you read about Roman times and, and in even plagues recently in the last hundred years, Spanish influenza, way more people die to that than are going to die of this. So, you know, if you keep it in context, it's a little bit easier to stay stoic about it. But at the same time, like I lost my grandmother to this, you know, she passed away. She wasn't going to probably last a whole lot longer anyway. She was in her eighties, but you know, it's sad that, that that happened. And I can't go visit my mom because she's having health troubles and she can't be exposed to this and we don't want to take a risk. So it's definitely impacted a lot of people in different ways. 
But then again, I don't see the point of everybody not living their life so that a few people can be protected for something that they can protect themselves from for the most part, right? If you want to isolate, if you want to quarantine until all this blows over, you're certainly capable of doing that. And that's your right. I wouldn't be smirched to anybody from that. And I'll do my best to keep a mask on and protect people. But at the end of the day, like we got to move on with our lives at some point, you know, we got to decide what we're going to do with this. So it's a hard balance. Again, you know, there's, you got to kind of visit both extremes to find the mean that works for you. I've lived my life very cautiously and I've lived my life very risky and I'm, I'm trying to find that balance. I think everybody needs to find that balance, but I believe that life was meant to be lived, you know, too. I don't think it was meant to, you know, stick yourself in bubble wrap and in a bubble and, and worry, you know, worry about everything and hope for the best. I think you got to take, you know, fortune favors the bold and you got to take some risks here and there. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there is no one answer fits all and there's no one solution. And if you, you know, if your immune system is compromised, then you're going to lean on the side of protecting yourself every single opportunity you As get. You and yeah, and if, and if you do feel like you're relatively healthy, then, you know, you may be willing to take more chances. And we are at the point where it is affecting people's livelihoods. And, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have been a remote business for the past five years. And we've been secretly preparing for this all along. We had no idea. Yeah, there's been a couple of bumps, you know, obviously some clients stopped working with me and, and, you know, but there's been some folks that have expressed interest in what we do. We do podcast production. And so I think just not everyone has that luxury and, and people that are required to go back or companies that are making them go back to work and saying, Hey, you know, we're opening up our offices and you've got to come in. And if you don't, you don't have a job. And, you know, for people that are in those positions. Well, and, and that's kind of silly at this point. If you can do anything, you can do it online for the most part, unless you're a surgeon or something. And then obviously your your job description is to be around this kind of stuff. But generally, if you do any kind of knowledge work, you should be able to do it remotely. There's no there's no real excuse for that at this point. I mean, we, we do masterminds and that's, if they're great when they're in person, I prefer them in person, but we can absolutely do them online and we teach people how to do that and build their businesses. And we're seeing our business grow as a result of this. You know, I've, it's kind of been one or the other, right? Either your business is crushed and it's not coming back or it's not coming back for a long time. You're going to have to pivot or you are, you know, seeing a huge uptick because y- you have a way that you can help people move forward from this. So that's, that's been a huge thing. Like my book sales went insane when this went off because everybody wanted to learn how to build a mastermind, right? And you guys can check it out at 8minutemastermind.com. If you want to add 100K to your business and 5, 10 hours a month of ongoing maintenance and learn a new skill, I mean, I've done everything on the, on the internet at this point. I've done giant course launches and consulting and masterminds and memberships and everything you can think of. And I think the mastermind model is the easiest way to get involved, to share what you know, to partner with experts. You don't even have to be the expert necessarily to help your your folks, your your service-based business people, like the people you serve to get the things they need and get paid a lot of money to do it, which is great. So I highly, highly recommend that. You know, if you're if you're struggling, if you're needing a new business model, or if you just want to bolt on another revenue stream on your current business, check out the eight minute mastermind. It's it's a book I took two years writing and I'm really grateful that it's been so well received. I get people sending me messages almost every day now, which is really fun about the book. So rewind the clock a little bit and talk about how you actually started to make your way into the world of digital, digital marketing and where you started your journey. You know, what, did you have a nine to five? Yeah. <laughs> what did that look like? And, and what did you have to learn and, and change in terms of mindset to start to move into that? Because I know a lot of people, that's one of the things probably people ask you about. Totally. How did I get to the way I am? I, didn't, I wasn't born this way and I'm constantly in flux, but that's the point of life. You keep learning, you live, you grow, you lead, and you hopefully learn bunch of cool stuff over the over the years. I've been lucky that I grew up in kind of a tenuous situation around money. 
My dad was injured, social security and disability checks. Mom had to leave to go find work to support us. And yeah, they basically kept a roof over our head and kept food in the fridge. But other than that, it was it was basically anything I wanted additional than survival was was I had to go find it. You know, I had to go figure it. I had a lot of little kind of side hustles as a kid. I mowed lawns and I I worked basically any odd job I could get. I was a plumber's apprentice. I worked at restaurants. I I worked at a shooting range for three years, which was actually really fun. And I got to learn how to shoot, which is another thing people get all up in arms about. It's like, you know, only idiots have guns. I'm like, uh, I'm not an idiot and I own guns, whatever. <laughs> so, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that I got to do. And, you know, I always felt like I was pretty entrepreneurial. I always was trying to get myself into the best position to make the most money possible. And that naturally led to its zenith when I was 26. Here I am, you know, I'd done real estate and I worked in finance. And eventually I, I, that all accumulated into me starting my own hedge fund at, at a very young age. And because I thought, you know, subconsciously what was driving me was if I just make all this money, I won't have any more problems because all of my problems growing up, a lot of them anyway, stemmed from lack of money, or at least that's the story I made up. So then all of a sudden my partners and I made a million dollars in a month, a million and 40,000 profit in one single month. And I'm like, a, a fuse blew at that moment where I was like, wait a second, hang on. I just made more money than I'd ever thought I'd make in the shorter amount of time than I ever thought I'd make it. And uh, here I am. I'm still miserable. I'm still disconnected. I'm still burned out. I'm probably not the person I really want to be. And I don't like the path I'm going down. So I had to make some changes. And I'd already started some personal development. I'd started some masterminds. I'd been a part of one for a couple of years at that point. And I quit drinking. I was on that. That was cool. And I, you know, I had stopped gallivanting around at all hours of the night. You know, because in my early 20s, I was like, you know, working till four or five in the morning, drinking till nine in the morning, sleeping till four in the afternoon, and then going back and doing it over again for years and years. So it wasn't really conducive to this new lifestyle. And you don't change everything overnight, but you can consistently change things. Like, let's say you did a series of 30 day challenges where you changed one habit that was having a negative impact on your life. You know, and again, I'm not here to judge anybody's habits or values, but if it's not in alignment with what your goals are, like if you want to get to, to Y and you're at X and there's a distance between X and Y and you can tell like, you know, extrapolating your behaviors and your habits and your environment out, is that going to send you on a path to get to that or not? And if it's not, well, then you have to decide, is that really important to you or is staying the same more important to you? And if it's more important to change, then you got to make those changes. And I like 30 day challenges because you can change one thing about yourself and form a new habit every month. And in 12 months, you've changed 12 things about yourself. And in three years, you have 36 new things about yourself. You're a whole different person. Yeah. So it might be something like quitting coffee or quitting drinking or exercising or eating better or whatever. And you just pick one at a time, right? Don't go over overboard and try to change everything at once because you'll just fail because nobody has the capacity to change everything about themselves overnight. But, you know, it started out with me, you know, losing weight because I was overweight and it started out with me, you know, picking up running and I really enjoyed running. And then I, you know, forced myself to, to go through like a triathlon and a marathon and a couple other things. And I got really in good shape and I got addicted to feeling the way I felt and not eating the crappy food that I ate, feeling good more of the time than I didn't. And, you know, not being hungover all the time was really great. And I, I started to love that and just generally, you know, forming these habits, which now have become the baseline, you know, when you couple that with environment and, and positive influences from your peer group. I mean, you're a, you're an unstoppable machine, right? I'm not saying that it's not, per, it's not perfect, but it's so much easier than having a bunch of druggy alcoholic friends that, that pull you down, you know? 
I like to talk about the quote that I repeat ad nauseum from Jim Rohn, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And it was something that I was conscious of as I was leaving the corporate world and I was trying to get into digital marketing. And I'm like, I don't have any folks who I don't have any friends who have done this, who've successfully built a business, who have built, you know, six figure, seven figure businesses. And, you know, I, I use the example of uh, Narnia when you come out of the, the wardrobe closet and you're just like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't even yeah whole new world it was crazy and then just to to your point about you know these challenges my partner i did like a gut cleanse and one of the things we did is stop drinking and i'm i'm tracking it now on the app and i'm I'm 40 days in and and it's there's something you know it's been a while since it's been that long humans in america especially when was the last time you didn't drink for 30 days i had to answer that question honestly i was 14 when i was like so now i'm like that was 12 years later i was 26 i hadn't not drank in 30 days i'm like well i gotta do this right it just became duh to me, you know? And I went 30 days and I felt better than I felt in years. And I'm like, this is great. I'm going to keep it going. I kept it going for 18 months. And then I went back to drinking for a little bit and I I hated it again. And I I stopped and that was pretty much it. I I went back to it one more time many years later. And then now it's been almost eight years and I haven't really drank at all. Yeah. And and I think when you think about it, you treat it almost with a maybe reverence is not the right word, but the the appropriate, like if you're going to do it, it's going to be a special occasion. It's going to be like one time and it's just going to be something that you just realize you're not, you don't need for like an extended period of time. Yeah. Or, you know, if you have an addiction or addictive personality, you know, there's different sides of the spectrum, right? I don't believe in labeling yourself as an alcoholic. It doesn't, that doesn't strike me as smart because our most powerful force is identity and what you say you are, you are. At least you believe that you are. So I don't believe in that. But I also believe that if you have that tendency and you you want to get on a slippery slope, you're going to be right back where you started. So I just don't go there anymore. It's not for me. Plus, I lost my dad to it. I lost my best friend to it. It's just it's not worth it. So as you're going through this this discovery journey and figuring out like what you thought was going to be the source of your happiness, you know, starting the hedge fund and and making all that money, and then quickly realizing that that's in fact not. <laughs> I looked over. I'm like, wait, this is the wrong mountain. Sorry. <laughs> so, can you talk a little bit about what? Yeah, the you, transition. Yeah, so, the transition. Who you were starting to surround yourself with? What you started to look, consume, read, and that started to change your perspective. Yeah. So, I think it really shifted gears for me because now I have three rules, which are help a lot of people, have a lot of fun, make a lot of money, and those are important rules to have in balance, right? Because if one is not working, then your life is going to be lacking in some respect. It's important to make money, but it's also important to you know, have a lot of fun in life, right? Because life is meant to be enjoyed. I don't believe that we're here for no reason. I think we're here to enjoy and experience what it is to be a human and progress our soul's journey, if you will, if you believe in that. And then finally, I think the point of us being here is for us to contribute to others and to the world at large and to leave the world better than we we showed up with it being. So the way I stumbled upon that, it was kind of by accident. Somebody told me to go to Tony Robbins and then they told me again and they told me again and they told me again. I'm like, well, I got this book on my shelf. That's good enough, right? I don't have to actually read it. Oh, God. So I eventually gave in to all these, I'll tell you exactly what did it for me. He wrote that book on money and I was a hedge fund guy. And I'm like, oh, what does Tony Robbins know about money? And not just that, he knows a lot of people who are very, very successful with money. So I read this book. I'm like, this is a great book, 700 pages, it's a doorstopper. And I immediately went and made an hour long presentation for myself and all my clients, kind of summarizing the key points of the books. I'm like, you know, I'm a, I'm a finance geek, but nobody's going to read a book this thick on finance for the most part. It's still a great book. If you want to read it, it's called Money Master the Game. I highly recommend it. So that was the first foray. And I'm like, this guy's got something on the ball. Let me, let me go to one of his events. So I went to UPW and I'm standing, you know, in a crowd of like 6,000 people and they're all jumping up and down and knocking on each other. And it's like a big dance party. I'm like, where the, what the hell did I get myself into? And I just remember there was one woman sitting next to me and she was staring at the floor and her energy level was very different than the rest of the crowd. So I just asked her, I'm like, Hey, what's up? You okay? She's like, no, I'm not okay. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, I'm not supposed to be here. 
You know, I, I, somebody gifted me a ticket. There's no reason I should be here. I can't even feed my kids this month. I shouldn't be here. I should, I should go home. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry that, you know, I can't solve all your problems. I'm, I understand your suffering, but are your kids are going to starve. Like I can, I can solve that. Like, so I pulled out my phone and I, I did Amazon prime pantry box and I filled it up with all the, the non-perishable food I could find that was healthy. And I sent it to her house and I'm like, Hey, you know, if you run out of food or you get stuck with food, just, just let me know. I'll send you another box. And she said, thank you. And I forgot about it completely. And I went through the event and we had stayed in touch on Facebook only just to, you know, in case she needed anything, but she never reached out again. A year later, I got a ping on Facebook that she was live and I was tagged in it and she's in her car and she's crying her eyes out. And she's like, that was the day I was, I was, it all turned around for me. I was thinking about ending my life at that moment. And this, this dude that I never met before, you know, fed my family and it turned everything around for me. And I was like, wow, I forgot about that. That like, that was something that, you know, I'm not trying to pretend I'm a saint or anything, but like, I just thought anybody would do that in that situation is just, you know, help out a little bit. And it had such a profound impact on her. You know, I'm sure Tony and everything she was doing was, was helpful too. But that was the moment where she said it turned it all around for her. And I was like, wow, if, if, if I could do something that meant so little to me and it could make such a difference to her, what else could I do for people? And, and I just, you know, really held on to how good that felt. And she's doing much better now. We've been in touch a little bit over the last five or so years. But what do you think it was? Because that's not something that may come natural. Maybe comes naturally to a lot of people. But I think that I think there's something inherent in either your upbringing, an experience you had growing up, or you know, I'm 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 just curious. What was it about your nature that allowed you to have to do something like that and have it be just a reflexive action? Yeah. Well. I wasn't hurting for money. That was one thing. So it wasn't a financial issue. It was just like, oh, I can help another human being who's genuinely helped. And I, I normally don't give money to people. Like I'll give them food. I'm happy to do that. Like I grew up in New York. There's a homeless person on every street corner, right? So you can't be going around giving money to everybody. It just doesn't make sense. And you kind of get immune to it over over time. But I'm always happy to be like, do you need some food? I'm happy to go buy you food if that's what you need or a toothbrush or whatever the hell, you know, stuff that's not going to be used for drugs or alcohol because I, I just don't prefer to give that way. So for me, it was, it was that partially. And then it was just the sense of, you know, the way I was brought up, you know, we look after people. Like if, if somebody is hurting you, you know, you do your best to help them. And, you know, for me, it was just kind of a, I don't know what it is, but it, it definitely, it made a shift for her and it made a shift for me. And I got addicted to that giving sensation, right? That sensation of taking my own ego out of the way and taking my own sense of, and I learned a lot from Tony too. I've been to enough 15 of his events. I'm one of his top affiliate partners. I've, we're going to Fiji this year to hang out with him, which is really cool. I'm super grateful and excited to, to get to spend more time with him. The whole point is when I first found that world, it was about me and my happiness. That was what I was most focused on. But that's a very limiting paradigm. And anybody who's generated a lot of wealth too will tell you, like, if you're just focused on you, this is what Sarah Blakely told me. She's the founder of Spanx. You'll make like 75 grand a year if you're just focused on you. If it's your family, you'll make like 150 grand a year. If it's your community, maybe you'll get up to 500 grand. But if you want to make millions or billions, you got to have a vision that's that big that encompasses the needs of that many people. So that really hit me between the eyes. I'm like, she's right. Like, you got to expand out from you because you're limited, but we are not limited. We are infinite. So if you make your, your focus global or at least larger than yourself, you'll not only be able to draw from the resources of all those people. And contribute and, and add more to that bigger pie, your slice will be bigger, certainly, but also the energetic quality, right? There's an energetic quality of life where you'll you'll get way more energy in return because you know, people go around in life, they get so myopically focused on individual transactions when they forget the bigger picture. Like it's not about getting something back in return from the person you helped. 
that's irrelevant. It's about giving to humanity and getting from humanity and giving to humanity and getting from humanity. And there's a, a very clear relationship where the more you give, the more you get. And it tends to be tenfold. And it comes from different directions. It doesn't come from where you put it. You just give and then it comes back to you in another way. Yeah, I think it's uh, the way it's explained is you give without the intention of receiving back in that moment. And like you can track it. It's it's not like you can linearly follow it and and predict it. But you can almost like if you start keeping a gratitude journal and writing down all the amazing things that happen to you and you start to, to keep a balance sheet, you know, if you're very logical like me, then you'll start to see a correlation. And, and I've always been that way. I'm a mismatcher. Like I see something wrong, I want to fix it. I've never been the person who like gets caught up in the trend. That made me a really solid hedge fund manager because I could always point out what was going to go wrong and manage the risk. What I really had to overcome was my tendency to do that with personal relationships, with people's feelings with my clients even, like giving them feedback that was not all rosy and flowery. It was more like, hey, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. They're like, I suck. And I'm like, no, everything else was right. (laughs) Paying me to point out what's wrong and help you fix it. You know? So I got to get better about doing that. And I think, you know, part of my nature, you know, the ENTJ Steve Jobs type is to point out the thing that's wrong. It's the mismatch, right? So when, when that lady was, you know, dour and looking down and had a problem, I'm like, I can solve that problem. And I fixed it. You know, most people would have ignored it, I think. Yeah. So you started getting the training, you started working with someone like Tony, and then how did that start to translate in what you were doing and and realizing that you had an ability to either put programs in place that could help people, and then eventually what what led into the the start of the idea for the podcast? Yeah. So the hedge fund, I wound it down after two years. So we had a really big year. We did 106%, and then I wrote everybody a check. I was over it. I left it left it pretty much alone after that. I still manage my own money, but I don't manage other people's money for the most part. And then I started to transition. I realized like I wanted to learn how to build a business that wasn't tied to my time so much either. And I went into internet marketing thinking it would be pretty easy to be like an affiliate and, and do all this stuff. And it's it's not. You got to really work at it to get it good. And I'm only now six years in getting to a place where my team handles more of the stuff than I do. You know, And I tried like after three years to get to that place and it failed. So I had to grow a lot as a human and and really get the right process in place and the people. And just, you don't know as much as, you know, as you go on. And as long as you don't stick with it, you'll probably learn more and not fail. But, you know, there's a very big risk of going broke. There's a very big risk of failing when you're on this big mission, you're trying to help a lot of people. It doesn't always generate to dollars, right? So it's finding that balance between the three. It's helping a lot of people, having a lot of fun and making a lot of money. And the balance is really important because you can't help anybody if you don't have any money coming in. And you're not going to have any fun if you're stressed about bills all the time. So you, know, you have to prioritize different things at different times to make sure that you're in balance overall. So when I started my business, it was a play on uh, the business I run now. It's called Make More Marbles. And when I was working in real estate and finance, I was in the part of the wealth creation cycle where we're not creating wealth, we're deciding what it's worth, right? We're in the marketplace, we're trading, we're, we're deciding. And there's only so much room in every transaction, right? If you're in a real estate deal and you make more money, that means somebody else lost it because there's only so much money in that deal. And with a trade, stock trade, same thing. Somebody wins, somebody loses. So it's this zero-sum game. But wealth creation is not like that. It's an abundant thing. We create something out of nothing. So I was like, well, I don't want to be like the hungry, hungry hippos just grabbing for all the marbles anymore. I want to just make more marbles. I'm like, make more marbles. That's kind of a cool name. Is the URL available? And I started a blog of the same name, which built into my business over the last six years. And we've done all kinds of things over the years. But what we settled on now is we focus on three areas. Masterminds, because I've been a part of 30 and led 12 and done them all over the world. And they've been the number one tool in my entrepreneurial toolkit. And they're a great way to add money to your business and less time. So that's a great place for people to start. 
then so masterminds and then money management skills if people want to be their own money manager and not have to pay out a ton of fees and, and stuff you know i can teach them how to do that so that's another thing we focus on i got another book coming out about that pretty soon and then the third thing would be marketing so mmm money marketing and masterminds and i feel like they flow into each other pretty well too right because you need to understand marketing to be successful in a business right that's a, like the top skill and you have to continue to invest in it because it changes all the time and masterminds are a great way to get started. And once you have some money or more than you need, you got to know what to do with it because otherwise you'll lose it because managing money and the skill set and the mindset that that takes is very different than 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 uh, the other skill sets, which is creating something out of nothing. Um, so there's how do you make the money in the first place? How do you once you have a pile of money, do something with it that's productive and, and you know, fights inflation and invest and grow it. And I actually started backwards. Most people, they learn how to make money and then they learn how to invest when they've been successful at making money. I had to do it the other way. I had to learn how to invest money, get successful at that, and then assumed I was going to be a good entrepreneur and I was not. I, it took me three years to really get my stride. And now I think I've, I've pretty much gotten to a place where I feel confident in both. I'm always learning, but I feel more confident. <laughs> so talk about some of the challenges that you see people struggle with when they start to work with you as a first-time entrepreneur. Totally. So a lot of it is ego stuff, whether they realize it or not. It's not that they, oh my God, I'm so great. I have a big ego. It's like the opposite. It's like your ego is underdeveloped. It's not where it needs to be. Like you have imposter syndrome. You don't feel like the expert or you feel like you need to be the expert in something where you could just find and work and partner with experts. They're afraid of what people think. They're afraid of getting inflamed on the internet. They're afraid of cancel culture. They're afraid of insert a million things here, right? It's a lot of mindset. So it's 80% of the game. And I tell every entrepreneur I meet, if you're from zero to six figures, focus on learning marketing and sales. Get over any hangups you have. That's the only thing that's going to make it work. If you can't get good at marketing and sales, you're not going to ever run a business. You're going to work for somebody. That's it. That's, that's the key skills. And then, okay, you have a little bit of mindset. You got a little bit of personal development. You got a little bit of leadership training. Now you can probably get to six figures. Once you're at six figures, you actually have to shift gears because what got you there will not get you to the next level. You have to start to, to shift down to shift up, which is now focusing on team and leadership and, and structures and systems and, and automation and things that allow you to get more of your time back because it's not about anymore what you can do with your time. And you can be very effective in the beginning stages getting, you know, if you have zero clients and you go to one client, that's an infinite return. <laughs> but you get this law of diminishing returns after a while. So when you're at the six figure mark, that's where that starts to kick in. You have to get more judicious about what you do. So it goes from what to do to what not to do. And then when you're in the six, mid six and high six, and you want to get into seven, it becomes about key hires. It becomes about people processes and, and really understanding your financial controls and how a business works and how money flows and getting yourself out of like, if you look at the org chart of my business, my goal is that I'm not on it. I don't want to be anywhere. As founder, founded by Brad Hart, and he's nowhere. He's not a cog in any machine anywhere. And that's where I'm working to get to. So so my business lately has been this exercise in refining and refining and refining our processes and systems, creating this engine that drives on incentive where everybody's incentivized to do their job at their utmost ability and they make more money if they do. But I'm not anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm a cop. Like I can stand on the side of the road and let traffic pass or I can put up a roadblock if I need to. But most of the time, I'm just letting traffic go through. And then talk about the, the what comes after that because they're getting started. And I think this is important because some listeners may be at that point, the, this idea of how to think about building the right team for where you're at in, in, your, in your journey. Yeah, I've been fortunate that a lot of my clients want to work with me. So I have a really cool pool of people who are already bought into our mission and our, our message. And, and like we're very specific about who we let into our little club. Like the values have to be aligned. They have to have a heart for service. They have to want to contribute. And 
we don't take on just any client. And as a result, I do less business. So I, I take a financial hit doing that. But I also sleep better at night knowing that the people I, that are there are the people I want. And I don't have a lot of nightmare clients. I don't have any nightmare clients really because I just get rid of them or I don't, I don't enroll them in the first place. So, so that's thing one. And that's been huge. And then the ones that really do well and they want to give back or they just, they don't want to start their own thing, but they want to work with me. I'll hire them if they have the skills that we need to help. So like some of my clients have worked with us for a couple of years, gone off and done their own thing, come back and worked with us again, or, or they partner up with another company and they come back and do services with us or specific lines of business. So just give a couple examples. Alex, who's in my book on page 23, he started off as one of my clients and then he started his own business. And then he came and wrote our emails for two years. And then he left for two years and came back now and he's writing our emails again. So that's really fun. And he's closer to the beginning of the journey than I am. So he can give advice that's more tailored to people who are just starting out. Cause I'm a decade plus into this journey. I, I can't, you know, not for lack of trying or empathizing with people that are just starting out. But if I have to have another conversation about, I just don't know what to choose for my niche, I'm going to throw somebody out the window. So it's helpful to have somebody on staff who's closer to that and have more patience for that kind of stuff. Because I want to talk about advanced stuff. I want to talk about marketing and funnels and like traffic, like really big stuff. Scale. Yeah. I don't want to talk about, I can't get started because I'm afraid, you know, that's no fun for me. So that's helpful. And then, you know, Frank, who's my head of sales, he's, he's partnered up with Travis Sago, who's doing a bunch of cool copywriting stuff. So they're working on a project with us. And Micah is my protege, is, is doing really cool stuff. And some of them, I train them and they leave and that's fine. You know, <laughs> it's like that old saying, what happens if you put all this money and time into somebody and they leave? Okay, well, what happens if you don't and they stay? Yeah, it's something that I'm doing a bit of work with uh, Alex Sharfin. I don't know if you remember, you've heard of him. And so one of the things been helping this with the idea of scaling and processes and procedures and place and job requirements and just the Lego blocks that you need in place if you are going to grow. Yeah, I never came from a corporate environment. I've never had a corporate job. So it's really hard for me to like get grok all the processes and systems. And I think a lot of it's wasteful, but some of it's not. Some of it you really need in place and, and it makes the job easier. And some, I don't know if it was through him or some somewhere else I heard, but you should have a new hire. One of the first things they do. Oh, this was something I think on the Twitter feed. I saw someone do this. One of these like sense making, like modern day philosophers. Someone wrote in there that he took a. I just got it now. I'm reading the book Anti Fragile, and and really really fantastic book. And one of the things he did, he, he had very few corporate jobs, maybe one or two. But he said the only the only way he could convince himself to take the job was on day one, he wrote a resignation letter and then he put it in a drawer. And so like he knew exactly like- Rapid fire, just in case. What I thought was interesting about it was like, what if you had your new hire on their their first day? And I actually just am hiring someone, so I'll probably have them do this, but have them write the resignation letter because it would be fascinating to read because they're already telling you the reasons why they would be leaving the job. Oh, interesting. Is this is something Alex recommends? No, no, no. I just I was thinking about Alex. I was trying to, a roundabout way because I was like figuring out where did I hear this. So you think as an entrepreneur that would be a cool exercise, but I'd want to test it just to make sure you're not shooting yourself in the foot there. Because people come in, they're too excited, and then you're like, okay, write your resignation letter, and they're like, what? Because <laughs> you know they're not there yet. You know, maybe maybe it'd be valuable. Maybe it wouldn't be. But you you got to remember, like we don't think like other people as entrepreneurs. And so uh, talk about when, when you thought it, it would make sense to add a podcast into the mix. Yeah. So I did two podcasts. One, the first one was an interview series. I did a hundred plus episodes and it was just kind of a test just to see who I could get to. 
And I had this really young, hungry assistant at the time named Savannah who went on to work with Traffic and Funnels and a lot of really cool companies. And she worked with me for two years. And one of her jobs is to reach out to these insane podcast guests, like people we didn't think we could get. And a lot of times I said yes. So that was pretty cool. Like we had the the CEO of Virgin Galactic came on. We had uh, Dr. Gundry come on. We had Alex come on. He was actually my second episode. Tucker Max, like all these really big authors, speakers, entrepreneurs, people that we really wanted to hear from. And we did an interview style. And you know, some of the episodes got 20,000 plus downloads. Some of them did nothing. But I think overall it was a good exercise. I just got tired of doing all the interviews because every Tuesday I would do five or six in a row and I was just so wiped out after that. It just wasn't fun for me. What was the name of that one? It was called the Make More Marvels podcast. So those are still out there. There's a lot of great interviews. They're all interview style. And I think interview style is kind of done to death. I think people have done it forever. And I'm not saying it's going anywhere. It's definitely going to be a baseline staple of podcasting, but I wanted to innovate in some way. So I thought about it. I'm like, well, what would be relevant to what I'm doing now, which is working on masterminds and helping people with masterminds. And I realized it kind of hit me one day that a lot of people get a lot of the value from the mastermind by listening to other people's hot seats and the challenges they have and how they worked it out because they get insights from you know not being on the hot seat themselves, just from kind of being a fly on the wall that they might not have gotten from the questions and challenges that they were posing. So that was one thing that I, I it kept coming up in my brain. So I did test 50 pilot episodes of eight minute hot seats, hence the, hence the eight minute mastermind, the eight minute mastermind book and all that. And it was kind of like, it was cool. People listen to them. They they're, think I'm onto something. So I may do another season of that. I don't do podcasts all the time. I just do batches. I'll do 50 or 100 episodes at a time. And then I'll, it's over for a while because it's just, it's, it's a lot of energy and, and expense to put all this content out there. I know that's not the way to do it. Like you want to kind of have consistency in all the platforms or trying to, you know, optimize for consistency. But I don't know. I don't need a million clients. I don't need to have the biggest podcast. I just, I need the right people to hear it. And, and then I can do cool stuff like bonus them out as big batches for people that, you know, add weight to an offer if it's a low ticket thing and, and stuff like that. So basically when people go check out my book, they, they have an option for the audiobook and the, the podcast is, as a package is pretty cool and all that becomes extra content I can share. Yeah, I think what's important and something you alluded to is the fact that there is no right way to do a podcast. And, you know, obviously we are talking about interview-based shows on an interview-based podcast. <laughs> but what's interesting is for me, it's actually a bit of a networking tool as well. The ability to connect with people, see people that I connect with, and I want to speak to. I, I always tell people I, I'm scratching my own itch with this podcast because if I, I've had everyone from like entrepreneurs to bird watchers to people who are like have a paranormal podcast. I'm just like, I want to learn why you decided that a podcast was a great way to tell your story. <laughs> and then you can start, start to have those discussions. But to your point about format, we have clients that we do limited series where we do an eight part series and then that's it. And then they take a break for two months. And so I think there is no right or wrong way to have, and the format could be anything from like, you know, the eight minute format, you know, to three hour Joe Rogan style, you know, whatever you think is appropriate. I'm a huge fan of Joe Rogan. I've listened to almost not all of them, certainly, but a heck of a lot of them. And I think, you know, him and Tim Ferriss and a couple others, they've kind of got it nailed. I don't think there's anywhere to go from there. And if you want to innovate, you got to think differently. Yeah. And what's interesting, kind of circling back to what we were talking about in the beginning about having these discussions with these new philosophers, this idea of this fracturing of all these conversations happening. One of the topics they've talked about was this idea of a mimetic mediator, someone who can like move in between these different fractured tribes and say, hey, can we find a common ground? And what one of the things they're suggesting is the fact that maybe a two or three hour format would be something that would lend itself well to just kind of hashing out these ideas. So it'd be interesting to see where that ends up. Yeah, I think Joe is doing that. 
you know, he's talking to Alex Jones one week and Elon Musk the next week. It's, you know, he's definitely across so many different tribes and he always relates it back to his personal experience. He talks about DMT, he talks about mushrooms, he talks about working out, he talks about fighting, he talks about hunting. Like that's always the things he's like geeking out about or his Tesla. Like he always finds a way to, you know, to put that, to relate his, his experiences of life to everybody else's, which is kind of cool. And he's so great at playing not he's not dumb certainly but he's he's great at playing the dumb guy like tell me more about that you know he, he pulls more out of people that are so head in the clouds and so ex- expert at what they know that it brings them back down to a, a manageable level right i think personally that daniel should be on that show person you know that, that i'd love to hear that but well i don't think i mean talk about a couple of degrees of separation he's already had eric weinstein on there several times uh, and his brother as well brett weinstein so they've I know that they've talked, you know, Brett and, um, or Eric and Daniel and, and Jordan Halls. And I, I've had a brief chat with him as well. Just people who's like fascinating in terms of like thinking about how their brain works and the, and the, their ability to articulate complex topics into something that's yeah, talking to Daniel one-on-one for two hours is like frying your brain in a frying pan. It's like, you know, it's, this is your brain on Daniel. <laughs> He's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Oh, yeah. And, and the fact that people like that exist and, and can talk f- through what's happening from an evolutionary lens, because I think you talked about what's happening and, and people are freaking out about the decline of civilizations. I mean, civilizations rise and fall. And if you read... Um, We're living through one right now. America's out if we keep up. I mean, it's not unsalvageable at this point, but it's, it's pretty screwed if we keep on this track. I'm wondering uh, when you were doing the, the two podcasts, how you grew as a host and if there's any unique skill sets that you had acquired that were different than what you were doing in your business. Yeah. So I tried to make it very much about the guests and I would only add things when I thought they're relevant, but I also wasn't listening to a lot of podcasts. I was just kind of doing it on my own. Like if I had listened to more Joe Rogan before that, now I listen to it a lot. I probably would have had it be more conversational and more open and more fun. You know, it was all very consistent, same questions, you know, to different people. And I would only really error on the side of a different question if I thought I could get a better answer. So I think my skills as an interviewer would have probably been better nowadays. But again, this is, you know, you only know what you know at the time you know it. And then additionally, I think I would have really made an effort to to market it more. You know, and what I mean by that is like to get the sponsorships, to get some money coming in. So I felt like I had a marketing budget to like push every episode and get it out to new listeners and new audiences and you know, making sure like I followed up with people to promote and making sure that I got the backlinks and making sure that, you know, you do all these little tricks to get more eyeballs eventually, because I didn't know as much about marketing then as I do now, you know, we learned a lot in three years or whatever it's been. Yeah. That's how I would approach it differently for sure. So I'm curious with all the people that you had the opportunity to work with, if there's any that you haven't mentioned that stand out as someone you would consider a mentor and someone that you've, you've learned a lot from. Yeah, I learned a ton from all the people in my industry, honestly. Like this mastermind that Pete Vargas put on last week with, I don't know, 150 influencers. You know, somehow I made the list. <laughs> I'm just grateful that I was in the room because I was like, oh, I know everybody here. This is pretty cool. Or at least I know of them, right? So all the big wig, wig, heavy hitter internet marketer types were all there and got to learn a ton just from being around them and how they ask questions and how they think about things and what their struggles are and, you know, what challenges they're doing. And, I got to have a, a great dinner with one of them on Sunday who just happened to be in town and he's been in the business for 20 plus years. And, you know, his problems are like, you know, well, I've got my, my wife and kids live here and I'm in Puerto Rico to save on money and, da, 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 and like figuring out, you know, lifestyle stuff. It's not so much about the business, which is run by 50 employees at this point. He's not really that involved. It's more about 
you know, that stage of life. And he's only 10 years older than me. So like, I'm just thinking like, wow, how much things could change in 10 years if I stay on this path where, you know, I'm making million dollar decisions in my bathrobe in my skyscraper penthouse, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, not that that's what I need or want, but it's like, it's cool that there's a trajectory here as a path. And, you know, it's exponential. That's what people don't realize when they're starting out, you know, you're always making 1% gains. If you're, if you're on the ball, if you're putting momentum forward, you're making 1% gains and 1% in the beginning of an exponential curve is nothing. Like it's nothing for a long time for years, but all of a sudden you start to hockey stick and 1% becomes a lot and, and 1% gains to Tony Robbins are happening daily and they're huge versus you know, somebody who's just starting out. So if you stick on the path for a few decades, you'll see some incredible results. But if you give up, then who knows what could have been. And I'd rather live with the chance and the risk of failure and continue to grow and learn and be challenged than, than the certainty of if I quit, then nothing happens. And I, and I live with that regret. That's, that's really important. A couple of questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Apologizing. I tend not to apologize. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I'm stubborn. I don't know if it's because I don't, I don't know. It's like, I have a weird hang up about it and I'm okay with like saying sorry about small things, but for like big things that I feel really certain about, even if I know I'm right, I really feel like I should just apologize and get it over with. That's, that's one thing for sure. So maybe there's somebody out there struggling with that that can, can relate because I think long and hard about things. And I, I tend to have pretty well-formed opinions that are based on a lot of different factual data. So when I dig in on something, there's a reason. Otherwise, I don't, I don't dig in at all. I just let it go. But when I'm like sure about something and I really put a case for it and then it, it ends up harming relationship, I'd rather be right than fix the relationship. And I think I just need to let go of that. That's not helping. Yeah, or find a middle ground. I think this, this comes, it keeps circling back to this idea of being able to disagree without being disagreeable. There's something interesting in this, folks, that I'm following, this idea called the Omega Rule. It's essentially some ground rules where you decide, like, we're going to talk about two things, about a, a topic that we're probably not on the same page with, but we need to have ground rules so that we can, you know, decide that how to have a discussion, move it forward. And, and like I said, I, I touched upon it at the beginning, just agree that we can talk about a topic without it blowing up. Yeah. And, and I don't get argumentative with people. It's just a matter of, I am who I am at this point. You know, I, I know what I believe in. I know what my values are and I know why they are. So when I see people that like, obviously just haven't done the work as far as their own personal development, their own growth, their own just relation to science and mathematics and, and, and reality, it's just like, you don't, you don't, you don't have the, the bandwidth to have this opinion formed and you're wrong and here's why. And then, you know, I don't feel a need to apologize for that and it hurts their feelings sometimes. So maybe I'll just get over it. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? The mismatcher thing. I have to really watch that because most people aren't like that. I'm always seeing what's wrong, not what's right. So I have to, for my own sake and other people's, I have to tone that down a lot. And I'm realizing that's actually harmed a lot of relationships over the years that I, I didn't know that about myself until maybe two years ago. As a result, I'm, I'm rethinking some of the things that I've said and did over the years and realized that, oh, okay, that showed up there, you know, and that probably made them feel this way. And I just don't, I don't place a high value on feelings. I place a high value on facts and reality, you know? Yeah. It seems like there's a fine line and, you know, you, everyone can decide where on the spectrum they want to land, but there's some empathy for understanding where what people's journey has been and how they got to where they are and, and why they think the way they do and, and what's what experiences have affected 
how they see the world, the lens in which they view the world. And so I think there's a bit of empathy involved to, to understand, okay, I, I, I kind of know why it is that you think the way you think, and then decide, you know, I agree or disagree, and then then decide also, do I want to continue this and, and try to educate you or, or you know, and without being seen as like, talking down to them. Um, so the, it's, a, it's a fine dance and a, and a balance. And I, and I think a lot of people don't have the actual vocabulary and the education and the patience and all the skills that you need fill in the blanks. Everybody's busy. Yeah. Right. Do we even want to invest the time? It's like, you, you got to let some stuff go or you'll never get out of your house in the morning. Like it's, the amount of data we have to take in, it's like, if you just get into, you know, if somebody's wrong in the internet mode, whacking at the keyboard, you're going to be, you're going to be stuck. You're not going to get anything done. Thank you for taking the time. I'm glad we were able to finally get it. Thank you. And I appreciate everybody listening. And I hope you got something out of this. And I hope you don't hate me. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Well, if you you do, at least you're honest about it. Probably tell everybody about it if you do. (laughs) So uh, what's the best place for folks to continue to engage as you learn more about what you're doing? So I've been writing a lot of books. We have one that I'm really promoting right now. It's called The 8-Minute Mastermind. You can check it out at 8minutemastermind.com if you ever wanted to add $100,000 to your business in 5-10 hours a month. Who wouldn't want to check that out? And yeah, we'll give you some additional goodies when you check it out. We have 101 questions for mastermind facilitators. We have 50 recordings of hot seats like we talked about earlier. And we have a cheat sheet for you uh, just for checking it out whether you grab the book or not. I'd love to hear feedback at facebook.com slash bradhart. That's where I'm at. That's H-A-R-T. And yeah, our main site is Make More Marbles, where you can check out all our podcasts and blogs and, and all kinds of cool stuff there too. Yeah, I'd be grateful to hear from people. I, I love getting confirmation that these aren't just going into the void, that people are actually listening and responding. That feels good. So thank you. Yeah, at the end of the day, as, as podcasters, as content creators, we want to know the stuff that we're creating is adding value and having an impact on people's lives. So any any feedback that you, that, that you do provide is, is very appreciated. Very much appreciated. <laughs> Even if it's negative, it's like, oh, at least somebody listened. <laughs> Thanks again for your time, Brad. All right, brother. Thanks again. Bye. Thanks again to Brad for coming on the show. Much appreciated. And I appreciate the experience that he's had in building businesses, successful businesses. And I think that's a valuable takeaway from this episode. I have a feeling there were a couple of nuggets of value to you as well. Don't forget, full show notes are available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 235. Show notes, takeaways, quotes, links mentioned. All can be found on the website. Once again, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Check out his full line of music at cedarsoil.com. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. If your company would like to understand how a podcast can help you build your brand, sign up for a free consultation call at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Tune in next week for my conversation with Molly McLaughlin, fan and friend of the show, host of Sleep is a Skill. We're going to learn all about sleep hacking, how to get better sleep, and what the journey was that Molly undertook to get to this point where she's now an expert in the space. If you made it this far, no doubt you're waiting for the retention hashtag. Let's go with Mastermind Brad and tag him at Make More Marbles and myself at podcast underscore junkies. Thanks again for all you to support the show. Talk to you next week.